Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Wednesday, October 19th, 2022 and the end of week 34 of the Russia-Ukraine War. It's been 3,156 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 238 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, we maintain that Russian terror attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure will continue throughout the week. Second, we maintain that the mobilization of up to 300,000 troops will have little impact on the battlefield due to poor morale and discipline and a lack of equipment among MOBICs. Third, we maintain that Ukraine still holds the battlefield initiative forcing Russian troops to remain defensive on all axes except Solidar-Bakhmut. Fourth, we maintain that using tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield is highly unlikely, and the chances of the use of nuclear weapons are in decline. Fifth, despite the improvement in the political situation, we maintain we are in the mutually assured destruction instability paradox due to previous irresponsible language from the Kremlin. Sixth, We maintain our assessment that the Russian military in Ukraine is combat-destroyed and has no meaningful way to respond to the ongoing and accelerating collapse on multiple fronts. And finally, we maintain that the chances of Russian forces invading from Belarus with the support of Belarusian troops have increased, but remain low at this time. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, continues its media blackout in Kherson Oblast. We have not updated our war map for Kherson since October 16th. There weren't any combat or territorial changes that we are permitted to report. Operational Command South, or OCS, did not report the number of fire missions today, but did share that the Ukrainian Air Force conducted 15 airstrikes. Russian ammunition depots in the Bereslav and Bashtanka rayons were destroyed, but keep in mind this covers a very large geographic area. The pontoon bridge built by Russian combat engineers over the Dnipro remained intact, and there were no reports that it has been used. The Russian millblogger community reports that Ukraine is preparing a massive counteroffensive along the entire Kherson front. The GSAFU has asked agencies not to provide public analysis of the situation 
and we would have a lot to say if we could. Russian General of the Army Sergei Sorovyakin, Supreme Commander of Russian Forces in Ukraine, admitted the situation in Kherson had deteriorated for Russian forces. In an interview with Russian state media, Sorovyakin said, quote, Further actions regarding Kherson will depend on the emerging military tactical situation. It is not easy, and difficult decisions cannot be ruled out. End quote. Ukrainian state media reported that Sorovyakin added that the situation was, quote, tense, and that Ukrainian forces were, quote, breaking through Russian defenses. End quote. The Gao leader, Gerilos Tremusov of Kherson, claimed that Ukrainian forces were preparing to attack the city itself in the near future and urged its residents to evacuate to Russia. Huh. See, we thought Kherson was illegally annexed by Russia and is part of Russia. Now they're telling their residents to evacuate not to the Zaporizhia, Crimea, Donetsk, or Luhansk parts of <clears throat> Russia, but pre-2014 Russia. I could be wrong, but this feels inconsistent. Shortly after the admission of problems for Russian troops, Russian-appointed Gauleiter Vladimir Saldo, the so-called governor of Russian-occupied Kherson, announced an evacuation of civilians from the west bank of the Dnipro would begin, and falsely claimed that Ukrainian forces planned to blow up the Novokakhovka dam and hydroelectric plant. Saldo announced the, quote, organized movement of the civilian population, end quote, from Bereslav, Oleksandrivka, Snikhrivka, and Biloserka. He did not specify if the Oleksandrivka evacuation order was in Kherson or Mykolaiv. Saldo used the word municipalities, implying the evacuations apply to the rayons and go beyond just the towns. The evacuations would take residents to the east bank of the Dnipro, with accusations that the order is equal to forced filtration of the civilian population. Okay, quick assessment here. There are these things that are called maps, and those maps can show things called terrain. It's the little bumpy up and down bits. If Ukraine had the capacity to destroy the Novokakhovka Dam, which they don't, the floodwaters would pour over the east bank of the Dnipro River, right where they're putting all of these evacuees. Terrain, hydrology, science... Gravity, does any of that sound familiar? Despite no clear indication that Russian troops would withdraw from Kherson, several high-profile mill bloggers were already declaring defeat. Andrei Medvedev wrote, quote, The unpleasant truth is always stronger and more important than the most beautiful lie, wrapped even in the wrapper of a report, even a presentation. In war, difficult decisions are often made. This is clear. But please, accept them so we all know for sure that this is not in vain. Do it in a way that really saves people. End quote. Private military company, or PMC, Wagner Group, wrote on their Grey Zone Telegram channel, quote, The verdict to Herson was signed in early March. Not the stalled offensive of the groups in the spring. Not the supply of Western weapons. Not a lack of manpower and or resources. End quote. Ridovka one or two steps away from Russian propagandists, attempted to provide a counterpoint that Russian troops would not withdraw or give up Kherson, which fell flat, saying, quote, Now the defense of Russian troops north of Kherson is constantly being tested for strength. The troops are withdrawing. There are clearly not enough people at the front. 
Against this background, someone may have the idea to retreat beyond the Dnieper, which implies the abandonment of Kherson. Such a withdrawal would be Russia's biggest defeat since the beginning of the conflict. In a word, the brilliant idea to surrender Kherson speaks only of the complete demoralization of the people who put it forward. Very difficult, very difficult, bad times, bad times. But you can't lose. Otherwise, it's the end of us all. End quote. Okay, assessment. And no, we're not going to provide an analysis of what we think is going on. It is important to point out that Sorovyakin never announced a retreat or a plan for one, only stated that difficult decisions might have to be made. We can neither confirm nor deny that Ukrainian troops are building up around Kherson. Russian mill bloggers have repeatedly predicted large-scale offensives across Ukraine that never happened. There is certainly a high sense of doom and gloom in the Russian sphere, and an admission that three months of supply interdiction has caused manpower, supply, morale, and equipment issues. Way back in mid-August, a million years ago, we talked about the signs to look for to indicate Russian troops were reaching the end of their metaphorical rope. The final gasps would include the breakdown in the command structure, including surrenders, fratricide, and desertion. We predicted a decrease in Russian mobility as fuel and spare parts supplies became low, and armor vehicles would be dug into static defenses, effectively negating their value on the open terrain of Kherson. Finally, we predicted increased looting as Russian troops sought food, potable water, and ways to stay warm with the coming fall weather. Here we are two months later, and we see all of this in the theater. And more. It is evident that the Russian troop situation in Kherson is purely defensive and increasingly difficult. We've been reporting on the deterioration of the situation since the second wave of the counteroffensive started on August 30th. The use of Mobix as little more than cannon fodder, to the point of causing psychological trauma to the Ukrainian troops due to the senseless slaughter, was one of the last things we reported before the media blackout. The Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR militia, reported that Ukrainian forces hit the Energia Stadium complex with rockets fired by HIMARS, knocking out electrical power to a large area and damaging the facility. They included a video of the damage. Vitaly Kim, Mykolaiv Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that Ukrainian air defenses shot down 11 Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 drones, and the Territorial Guard destroyed a 12th. There were no impacts reported in the city. Assessment here. Ukrainian forces continue to show they are rapidly adapting to the onslaught of kamikaze drones, destroying over 80% of incoming UAVs countrywide in the last 24 hours. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and northern Zaporizhia. There was no change in the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant status at the time of recording. Dmitro Orlov, the exiled mayor of Enerhodar, reported that the city's industrial area and then the residential and commercial districts were heavily shelled and accused Russia of the attack. Electrical and water services were knocked out in parts of the city. There were no reports of damage to the 330-kilovolt backup line that supplies ZNPP from the thermal plant. Don't worry, if there is a crisis at the plant, we'll release a flash report on our Patreon page. 
The Hromadas of Mirova and Pokrov, near Nikopol, were attacked by Grad rockets fired by Multiple Launch Rocket Systems, or MLRS. Additionally, Markhanets and Chervonohriurivka were hit by up to 60 Grad rockets. There weren't any casualties, but power and water services were knocked out to more than a thousand households. One Shahed-136 combat drone was shot down overnight. In Kriviri, the Inulets district was hit by rockets targeting electrical infrastructure. There were no injuries, but several homes were damaged, and power and water service was disrupted in parts of the city. The area is still recovering from damage after Russian Kinzhal hypersonic missiles targeted a dam last month, flooding 112 homes. Now to the Donbass region, today starting with southwestern Donetsk. The DNR Militia Public Relations Channel reported offensive action in one location today, once again supported by a video of artillery strikes of questionable accuracy. The militants claimed they destroyed a self-propelled artillery howitzer and three tanks. Ukrainian forces carried out 214 fire missions on the Russian-occupied territory. There was really only positional fighting going on. The GSAFU reported that Ukrainian forces repelled attacks on New York and Novokalinova. Novokalinova is five kilometers from the known line of conflict, and the DNR did not report any battlefield success. So in our assessment, this was likely a reconnaissance group of squad or platoon size. The GSAFU reported that Russian forces attempted to advance on Nevelske and Dopitne, and the DNR militia released a video showing Ukrainian positions in Pervomaisky being shelled. Positional fighting continued in Marinka and Novomikhailivka. Video released by the Ukrainian 79th Air Assault Brigade showed artillery destroying a Russian UR-77 meteorite mine-clearing vehicle. The specialized vehicle fires a long cord of explosive material which is then detonated. The shockwave is meant to set off mines in the area and rapidly clear a path. The equipment can be used as an offensive weapon by firing the cord in a high arc and having it land in a massive coil in one location to then be detonated. The video of the vehicle being destroyed looks like the hand of God came down on it, indicating that it was fully loaded. No, but seriously, it looked like this explosion was directed by Michael Bay, who is an American film director known for making films featuring massive explosions. Why it was in an open field so close to the line of conflict, entirely unsupported by light infantry, is and will remain a mystery. Insurgents in Mariupol recorded a short video and reported that large convoys of Russian military equipment and supplies were now passing through the city in both directions. Okay, quick assessment. Russia has to use Mariupol as a ground line of communication, called a G-lock, that's a supply line, due to the damage on the Kerch Bridge. Unfortunately for them, the use of trucks is less efficient and more easily ambushed than railroad logistics. The most significant documented fighting continues to be in northeast Donetsk. A reliable Ukrainian source reported fighting on the outskirts of Tierny and Torsky continued. For the first time in weeks, however, neither belligerent reported significant fighting in Solidar or Bakhmut. 
Drone video showed mercenaries with PMC Wagner coming under artillery fire along the E-40 highway east of Bakhmut, abandoning their wounded and hiding in a highway culvert. Sergei Haidai, Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor, claimed that half of the mercenaries with Wagner Group are convicts. PMC Wagner attempted to advance on Odradivka, and Russian forces continued their attacks on Mayorsk. Predictably, there was no change in the situation. Let's move on to Luhansk. Russian forces attempted to push Ukrainian troops out of Bilohorivka, that's the Bilohorivka in Luhansk, and were unsuccessful. NASA Fire Information for Resource Management Systems, or FIRMS, suggested that heavy fighting continued in Novoselivske on the P-7 highway, a critical Russian ground line of communication called a G-lock. Again, that's a supply line. The village is 17 kilometers from Svatov. Pro-Russian sources reported that Novo Ivanivka, northwest of the strategically important town of Hirske, was struck by rockets fired by HIMARS. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Moving on to the Kharkiv region. Russian forces launched a spoiling attack on Ohirtseve, northeast of Kharkiv. The attack was repulsed and Russian units returned to their defensive positions. The GSAFU reported that Ukrainian troops successfully defended against an attack on Dovrichna on the west bank of the Oskil River. Multiple Russian sources claimed that Ukrainian troops were pushed out of Khryanikivka on the east bank. Based on the information, we've coded Khryanikivka under Russian control. Russian forces launched eight S-300 anti-aircraft missiles used for ground attack at the city of Kharkiv. Two missiles were shot down, while six landed on warehouses reportedly filled with humanitarian aid. Pictures after the attack showed destroyed supplies and did not indicate the area hit contained military hardware or ammunition. A potentially very dangerous forklift was destroyed in the attack, however. Just kidding. It was just a regular forklift, like the kind you might use to move pallets of things like humanitarian aid. In the Cherniv and Sumy region, Dmitro Zhivitsky, Sumy Oblast administrative and military governor, reported the Hromadas of Yunakivka, Khotin, and Nova Sloboda were shelled by mortars and artillery. The building that houses rescue services in Khotin was damaged, and a mortar shell hit a school in Nova Sloboda. The center of Yunakivka was hit by artillery in a daylight attack, and there is more information on that in the War Crimes and Human Rights segment. In the Cherniv Oblast, the village of Hai was shelled by Russian forces from across the international border. In the Black Sea, Crimea, and Odessa region, video showed that bus service had been re-established on the Kerch Bridge, while repair work continued on the rail and destroyed highway sections. Russian-appointed governor of Sevastopol, Mikhail Razvazhev, reported that a drone was shot down near Belbek Naval Airfield. On the Russian front, video from Bilgorod showed another explosion and fire with secondary explosions. Local officials denied there was an attack, 
Regardless, an ammunition depot was destroyed by an apparent smoking accident. The death toll from the Russian Su-34 crash in Yeysk, Russia, jumped to 13, including three children. To say that Vinyamin Kondratyev, governor of Krasnodar Federal District, stepped on a hornet's nest would be an understatement. Standing outside the burned-out apartment building, he told a reporter that they need to provide, quote, everything necessary so that residents will continue to feel not like people, but they will nonetheless continue to work. I am certain that many of them will go to work tomorrow. End quote. You know, do something to ensure residents, quote, get ready for work and go in a good mood. End quote. Talking heads in Russian state media tore Kondratev to pieces. Pravda radio host Sergei Mardan wrote, quote, It is not clear what Kondratev meant. Cheerful music under the window of a burned-out house or handing out boxes of chocolates? How can you create a good mood among the victims of the fire, among whom 13 people died? End quote. Russian officials backed away from the whole bird strike claim, and are now reporting the aircraft suffered a catastrophic mechanical failure. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. In another troubling sign, the Belarus 432 Main Military Clinic Medical Center has been activated for field deployment training. Belarus has been moving significant manpower and equipment and Russia is deploying significant armor assets with new triangle tactical markings. Let's pause for some assessment here. We maintain that the risk of Belarus invading Ukraine remains very low, but has moved into the realm of possibilities. Despite questions on how much power Alexander Lukashenko holds over his military, there are no signs that Russian forces have put the country under occupation or taken control of its military. We further assess that if Belarus were to attack Ukraine, it would likely occur in western Ukraine along the Polish border, with a thrust down the M-19 highway toward Kovel, Lutsk, Rivne, and Lviv. Moldova announced that the nation plans to acquire air defense systems after multiple Russian missiles have flown over its airspace. Moldova is Europe's poorest nation, and has a token military force with an entirely symbolic non-combat air force. United States Senators Jack Reed, a Democrat from Rhode Island, and Jim Inhofe, a Republican from Oklahoma, are introducing bipartisan legislation to amend the annual defense authorization bill. The bill would grant the Pentagon wartime procurement powers, allowing it to buy ammunition and other critical hardware to support Ukraine and replenish U.S. stockpiles, without congressional authorization. Officially, the change is to assist in speeding up military assistance and restocking inventory, but there may be more to pushing the legislation through before the end of the year. In an interview with Punchbowl News, United States Congressman Kevin McCarthy, a Republican from California, said, quote, I think people are going to be sitting in a recession, and they're not going to write a blank check to Ukraine, end quote. Republicans are widely expected to win the House in the United States midterm elections in November. President Joe Biden can bypass Congress and use the power of the Lend-Lease Act, which expires on September 30, 2023, and almost certainly won't be extended if the Republicans win the House. 
He hasn't had to use the act yet due to congressional cooperation, so far. The Trump-backed wing of the Republican Party has held a pro-Russian stance as part of its platform, wanting to focus on domestic issues and deter Chinese aggression. Some assessment here? The significant increase in defense production and spending has already created thousands of additional high-paying, gray-collar jobs in Republican-controlled states. The slashing of aid would eliminate the funding fueling job expansion in those regions, exacerbating recessionary pressure. To be frank, the $16.1 billion in military aid provided to Ukraine since 2014 isn't even a rounding error in the United States' annual budget. Maxim Kalashnikov relayed a message from our favorite FSB colonel, wanted war criminal Kremlin pariah and recent volunteer Mobik Igor Girkin Strelkov, saying, quote, Igor Strelkov got in touch, alive and healthy, although the battles are strong and the losses are heavy. Where he is is a mystery, end quote. The bounty for the capture of Strelkov has grown to at least $130,000. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky reported that the German-supplied Iris-T air defense system performs, quote, very well. Ukraine is the first nation in the world, including Germany, to deploy the state-of-the-art weapon. Zelensky called it a, quote, really effective system. The Israeli government will likely have to pick a side with mounting pressure for the country to provide Ukraine with air defense weapons. Dmitry Kuleba Minister of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine sent, quote, an official note to the government of Israel with a request to urgently provide Ukraine with air defense systems and to start high-quality cooperation on obtaining appropriate technologies for Ukraine, end quote. With Russia using Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 kamikaze drones, it is widely believed that Israel has countermeasure technology in its arsenal. So far, Israel has limited its support to humanitarian aid, body armor, helmets, medical supplies, and ambulances. Russian FSB medical doctor Maria Dmitrieva has defected and is requesting political asylum in France. Dmitrieva is the second Russian intelligence official to defect in less than a week. Speaking of defecting, Let's talk about Russian mobilization. The day after the Moscow Federal District announced an end to mobilization, RIA Novosti reported that the governor of the St. Petersburg Federal District fired the head of the mobilization program. No reason was given for the termination. Russian mill blogger Mertz wrote another entry, shredding the mobilization effort and the deployment of untrained Mobics into Ukraine, he accused members of the Kremlin of preparing a coup d'etat against President Putin, writing, quote, Instead of distributing the mobilized to the military units of the armed forces of the Russian Federation, which suffered significant losses, a significant part of the mobilized will go to form from scratch rifle regiments. The organization of new mobilization rifle regiments is purely based on MOBICs, including officers, for whom there are no regiments of artillery, communications, or military equipment with trained crews. In modern combat conditions, these can only and exclusively be a crowd of easy targets for Ukrainian artillery and mortars. Well, since even the already existing military units are supplied badly, the supply of Mobics will differ from them only for the worse. 
Any fool understands that to create such units in the current situation is to create only and exclusively sources of future refuseniks. How poorly trained units without heavy weapons, artillery, and communications can hold the front against any significant enemy forces was perfectly shown by the counteroffensive of the armed forces of Ukraine near Izum. Units are created and prepared to be sent to the front, capable only and exclusively of the mass slaughter of their own personnel. End quote. Quick assessment here. Mertz claims that the Mobics are being intentionally sent, completely unprepared, into battle to further erode trust in the Kremlin and President Putin. There are numerous rumors in the Russian information space about who is behind the alleged sabotage. In our assessment, Putin continues to hold almost absolute power over the Russian government, and the use of Mobics as cannon fodder is not part of some deep state Kremlin conspiracy, but a function of the deep corruption in the Russian military. Mertz has already been arrested for his doom posting and was released. This latest entry may be a bridge too far for the Kremlin, given he is already past strike one. Okay, from an entirely selfish perspective, it's bad enough that we've lost Girkin in the information space. I'm sure it's fine, though, because it's all going to plan. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's report, but if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. Russian shelling of the village of Yunakivka in Sumy killed two civilians and wounded one. The attack damaged a medical clinic and knocked out power. Russian state media started interviewing former POWs released in yesterday's prisoner exchange, asking them if they were bullied or tortured during a live shot. The RIA probably would have preferred the interviews had been recorded and edited, with the former Russian prisoners reporting they were well-treated. Andriy Yermak, head of the Office of the President of Ukraine, blasted the International Committee of the Red Cross, or ICRC, for ignoring repeated requests to visit Ukrainian POWs and inspect the Olenivka penal colony in Donetsk, saying, quote, Ukraine expects and demands that the International Committee of the Red Cross acts decisively to obtain access to Ukrainian prisoners in Olenivka. After all, the organization was created to carry out missions like this one. The Red Cross tolerates Russia's violations of international law and does so silently. End quote. In geopolitical news, President Zelensky will address the leaders of the European Union on October 20th by video conference. The topic was not released at the time of recording. And in economic news, Belarus reported it could not repay its foreign debt due to sanctions and has defaulted. On Monday, the World Bank put all loans made by its main lending arm to Belarus into non-performing status and reported that payments of over $68 million were overdue. The ruble was unchanged, with an exchange of 62 for one U.S. dollar. Oil prices dropped, with WTI crude falling to $83 a barrel and Brent dropping to $90. United States RBOB wholesale gasoline on the spot market was set to trade at $2.56 a gallon, or $0.68 cents a liter. 
European Union natural gas futures dropped almost 10 percent as concerns over winter supply levels are disappearing. EU Dutch TTF natural gas futures dropped to 113 euros per megawatt hour for November 2022 contracts. Chicago SRW wheat futures were unchanged at $8.56 per bushel for December 2022 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.